You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Warrior Priest Podcast. I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. And it turns out uh, Bill Winter and I actually did record an episode a couple days ago, but Bill's audio did not end up syncing with my audio track, and so Bill is currently working to fix that. And in the meantime, because I wanted to get an episode up this week before it got uh, too far away and schedules are what they are and you know how things can get away from you if you put it off. So I thought, no, I made a promise I was going to dive back into the work ethos by Stephen Pressfield and finish up this meditation, which is from, this is the seventh meditation, Tribes, Gangs, and Terrorists. And I covered the first part of that, pages 16 through 18 in the last episode. So I wanted to, as I said, wrap that up. And so we're going to dive back into that today and begin with what Pressfield writes here. That first, tribes exist for themselves alone, an outsider, unless he falls under the obligation of hospitality, is not considered a human being in the same sense that a tribal member is and is not protected by the same notions of fellow humanity. Tribes are the original us versus them social entity. When this aspect of the honor culture is grafted onto a criminal, political, or extremist religious doctrine, read Mafia, Aryan Brotherhood, Al-Qaeda, the easy next step is dehumanization and demonization of the enemy. I was discussing with a friend of mine yesterday a book I read a long time ago, and I still have it in my library. It's essentially an anthology by a man named Mircea Eliade, and uh, yeah, I know that name, Mercy Iliade. I think I mispronounced it for years before someone actually told me how it is to be correctly pronounced. And Mercy Iliade was a professor at the University of Chicago back in the day. He died in 1986, I believe. He was a historian. He was a philosopher. He was a short story writer, a journalist, essayist, novelist. But pr- he's primarily known uh, for his work in comparative religious studies. And let me look it up for you real quick here. I can tell you, I hope, his book, which apparently all of these are in Romanian, which doesn't help me at all. But uh, A History of Religious Ideas, that's what it was. A History of Religious Ideas, Volume 1, 2, and 3. And what he did in these is essentially he began early in his career collecting creation myths, and salvation myths, apocalyptic myths, rites of passage myths, and so forth from different cultures around the world. And then when he was more established as a professor in his career and had gained, well, enough notoriety that people, students came to him to study under him, he would then send his graduate students around the world to collect these stories for him. And then, as I noted, he put them all together in a uh, three-volume set. I have it in a single volume. You can get this on Amazon called The History of Religious Ideas. And the reason I think of it and the reason we were discussing it yesterday goes along with what Pressfield talks about as far as tribalism in that in any tribal culture, and we are tribal by nature. I was, again, here's another tangent or another rabbit trail, but I was at a used uh, video game store yesterday, uh, video games and movies and so forth, looking for Christmas presents for the kids. And 
the owner and another person, a customer, were talking and discussing how they don't believe hierarchy is a is is natural to us. It's a social construct, right? And all of this talk then about flattening out the hierarchies and eliminating prejudices and discrimination and bigotry and so forth, and how if we could just get past this old, obsolete, archaic notion of hierarchies, that there's got to be somebody at the top and then it's trickle-down economics, so to speak. You have people at the bottom, you have people in between, or as they used to say in the old Greek city-state model, you had politicians, you had protectors, and you had procreators or producers. So at the top, you had the people who ran the show, and then you had the folks that were the protectors, that was the warrior class, the soldier class, the hunter-gatherers, and then you had the producers, the procreators, those who were responsible for raising the children and preparing the food, processing the grain, butchering the pigs, so forth and so on. And at least for the Greeks, and of course they didn't invent this, for any tribe, for any city to exist past today, there had to be these three classes of people. We needed elders to run the day-to-day affairs of the village. They're the ones who are responsible for the ethics and the morality of the village. They're responsible for the, the code of ethics, the ethos, as I discussed in the last episode about the ethic in tribalism. You see this in our episodes on Bushido, that even though early on the samurai class didn't have a code of ethics necessarily or a codified rule of behavior, it was still there, culturally speaking, This is how warriors behave. Likewise, in any tribe, then you have elders, and that is essentially their responsibility. If you have ever read the book, The The Giver, I'm sorry, it's a children's book. It's a wonderful book, and I highly recommend reading it. It's called The Giver. And in that society, one person is chosen to essentially carry and be responsible for the knowledge of the entire culture, the entire society, so that it's not lost or forgotten. And likewise, in any any tribe, you have the elders, you might have shaman or priests or priestesses who are charged with maintaining that knowledge of the village's history, of their culture and practices and traditions and rites and rituals. But then you have to have the warrior class, and the warrior class is there to protect the village. They're there to hunt and to gather, to fight off enemies, but also to bring home the bacon. And then you have the producers or procreators who are responsible for not only procreating, you know, producing children and raising the children, but also then, like I said, butchering the hog and taking care of processing and preparing the vegetables or the fish or whatever it might be. Every single person in that tribe had a vital vocation, a vital responsibility without which the entire village, the whole society would crumble, break, and the tribe would die. And so it wasn't as if the elders, the politicians were more important than the warrior class or the warriors were more important than those who prepared the food, but that every single person in that society was necessary and that the loss of any one of those people or should any one of those people decide not to get up in the morning and be a tribal elder, be a shaman, um, protect and preserve their history, their stories, their traditions, or decide, you know what, I'm not going to go hunting today, or I'm not going to defend the village today from uh, the shadows out there in the in the jungle. Or, you know what, I'm not going to cook the food. I'm not going to take care of the kids. I'm not going to do the day-to-day necessary things to take care of and preserve the life of the village. I'm not going to do it. Well, if one person decides not to do something, 
that is necessary, the entire village will suffer as a consequence. And so imagine then, and especially, of course, because these tribal societies are familial, they're extended families, they're, they're intermarrying with each other in the sense of, you know, you only have so many families, so therefore you only have so many boys and so many girls to choose from. Now introduce a stranger into that, who, as I talked about in the last episode, what's out in the woods? Well, the chaos monster is out in the woods, the demons are out in the woods, the evil spirits are out there in the woods. Shadows are threats. They are a contagion, a bacteria that threatens to infect the whole body, which is the village. And therefore, what do we do to justify making war against other people? What do we do to justify taking their food when there's a famine? What do we do to justify protecting ourselves at the expense of others or even driving away others who may be coming to us for something as simple as help? Well, first we dehumanize them and then we demonize them. They don't talk like we do. They don't dress like we do. They don't behave like we do. Therefore, they are lesser than. And whether it is our, our moral code, our political code, how we, and by political, I don't mean, you know, vote red or blue, but political in the sense of polis, as in the sense of city, which is what polis means. That in the case of a city or a tribe, why are we letting this person come in here? They're not a part of our city. They're not a citizen. They're not a part of this tribe. And they don't worship our gods. They don't participate in our rituals. They have not gone through our rites of manhood and womanhood. And therefore, why are we allowing these people here? So in the extreme instances in, in modern society with the mafia, the Aryan Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda, as Pressfield points to, we see this, but as I said, in its most exaggerated extreme form, and yet that's what it is, an exaggerated or extreme form of tribalism. And whether it's an Alcoholics Anonymous group, a book club, um, a martial arts class, um, whatever it is that we attach ourselves to where we find that sense of humanity, that sense of belonging to a group and being given our identity and meaning by our participation in that group, we see tribalism. We see how we are hardwired to function tribally. And so we can talk about the cultural invention or manifestation of, let's say, the hierarchy, which I believe is a postmodern invention. It's an Enlightenment invention. And not really even an Enlightenment. It's more of a late 20th century invention. It's a Marxist thing. Um, or I should say Marx was 18th century, but the way it spun out in the 20th century is, is Marxism. And, and nowadays we don't call it Marxism. We call it progressive politics or social justice or whatever you want to call it. But that's, it's Marxism. It's just, again, different, different mask, different set of clothes, but it's just the same old Marxism. The Marx didn't invent it. He just gathered it together from other sources and, and put it together in a way that it was condensed and easy to digest. And so, yeah, we can argue all we want against these things, but then it doesn't matter because we still group up. We still form tribes because we still need a sense of why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? What is the goal of existence? It's inescapable that we ask these questions. If we are, if we are conscious, if we are thinking, then eventually we, we ask the question of ourselves and others, why am I here? What's my purpose? What's the goal of my life? That's why you're listening to this podcast and why I'm talking right now. So to continue with Pressfield, the warrior ethos, on the contrary, mandates respect for the enemy. 
The foe is granted full honor as a fighting man and defender of his home soil and values. From Cyrus through Alexander, to the Greeks and Romans, and on down to Rommel and the Africa Corps, with some notorious lapses, be it said, today's enemy was considered tomorrow's potential friend and thus granted his full humanity. So at the end of the last episode, I mentioned uh, Pressfield here on shadow tribalism or criminal tribalism. And that when tribalism does go dark, when it goes bad, it becomes the mob or the Aryan Brotherhood or Al-Qaeda. But the war ethos, as it has always been intended to be, oh, what do you want to say, embodied in the warrior, him or herself, is that, number one, respect your enemy. Because as, as Inazo Natobe talked about in the book Bushido, for the samurai and, and for the knights in, in Europe, Never, never, never punch down, essentially. That is, never pick an enemy, never choose someone for your enemy that you wouldn't also gladly call friend. And that to call someone enemy who is lesser than, someone that you could defeat without hardly any effort whatsoever, it's actually a stain on you. It actually besmirches your honor as a warrior, not the enemy. And therefore, to, to honor yourself, to honor your tribe, to honor the knighthood, the samurai class, whatever it might be, you choose enemies, you choose opponents who are your equal. And, you know, the way this is done practically, for example, is if you've ever competed in a tournament or fought, and at least in grappling, uh, Muay Thai, and combat martial arts, you enter tournaments, you fight against people, usually, um, I'm definitely the exception to the rule, and I've met others, but um, usually you fight people that are around your same age, who are your same weight class and also your same belt or level of experience. That way, all things, relatively speaking, are equal. Therefore, the warrior ethos plays itself out in the way that tournaments are set up and how we compete with one another, that the playing field is level as far as age and as far as weight and as far as experience level. And we call that parity, right? You talk about parity in the NFL or Major League Baseball or whatever it might be. That is, we don't want any one team to dominate all the other teams. That would be unfair. <laughs> and yet we see that it is inevitable that one team comes to dominate other teams because one coach, one general manager, one owner, whatever it might be, they kind of figure out the secret sauce. They figure out the formula for success, and then they, they, they put that down, they codify it, they make it an ethic. And from that, then they create this formula this a winning team. And then the other teams attempting to catch up with them, try to copy that. In jujitsu, for example, there's a man named John Danaher, who's part of the Hensel Gracie Academy out in New York, New Jersey area, who has essentially mastered the leg lock, the leg attack game, leg lock, the leg attack game, and is world-renowned now for heel hooks, ankle locks, knee bars, leg attacks, like I said. But he's also basically a master at jiu-jitsu and a master of teaching jiu-jitsu and has numerous DVD series on all manner of submissions and attacks. And so when he puts something out, he's put it out after he's comfortable putting it out there. He's already mastered that system, so to speak. And therefore he's saying to the rest of the world, go ahead and learn from me. And then everybody else in the jujitsu community is trying to catch up to Donaher's students. 
And so as a consequence, you see this. But yet, the warrior ethos mandates respect for the enemy. And one way that we respect our enemy is that we choose for our enemies those who are our equals, who we would be glad to call friend under different circumstances. That is honor. And so we give our enemy, our opponent, full honor as a warrior, as a fighting man, and a defender of his home and his soil and his values. And so rather than demonize or dehumanize our opponents, our enemies, instead we ask, how can I honor fully my enemy? And recognize, or at least ask the question, what is he fighting for? What is she fighting for? Is it pride, hubris? Is it petty jealousy? Is it envy that they're fighting for? That they're coming to take what I have earned or what I have worked for? Are they demanding that I give them something that they themselves are unwilling to go out and get for themselves? Are they punching down or are they punching up? Is this person unworthy to be called my enemy, my opponent? And therefore, is it my responsibility, is the onus on me to say to the, the person, there's no fight here. I'm going to walk away. I, this is, again, one of the things that we talk about with our children in regards to jujitsu and combat martial arts is that what one of the things, one of the, the, the primary things that you learn through combat, through constant sparring and training is... Well, you're, you're humbled and your ego is crushed and you're showing the truth about yourself. You, you learn to know yourself and who you really are, warts and all. And therefore, when you're out on the street, especially after three or six or 10 or 20 years in martial arts and someone calls you out or challenges you or gives you that look like, what, you want to fight? Or they start talking smack about you. You don't react in kind toward them because you recognize this person Maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're just an asshole. Who knows? But the point is, I can choose how I react to this person. And because I have trained my mind, because I have disciplined my emotions, because I have learned about myself and the truth about myself and who I really am as a human being, because I have been humbled and because I know how to defend myself and my family in a fight, I know that this person is not a worthy opponent, that this person is not behaving honorably. He's not worthy of my respect. I will treat him respectfully, but I will not. I don't respect him because of, the, of his outburst, the way he's behaving here, especially if it's in public. And so I choose not to engage this person. I choose not to escalate the situation. I choose not to enter into a conflict with this person because this person's not worthy of honor. Now, I'm not saying that in a pejorative, negative sense necessarily. I'm just saying that in a very matter-of-fact, pragmatic sense. And therefore... I also know that as a trained fighter, in an equal fight, if he doesn't have a gun or a knife or something else, I'm most likely going to win this fight because I'm a trained fighter and this person's not. Because if he were, he wouldn't be saying these things right now and he wouldn't be having this outburst in public like this. He wouldn't be throwing a temper tantrum essentially or trying to prove something to himself and the people around him that he's a, a big man and he's going to do it at my expense. On the other hand, if he lays hands on my wife or my children, I'm going to end him. That's just the way it works. And so... I don't start the fights, but if necessary, I train to stop the fight in the least violent, the least damaging way possible for myself and my opponent, and hopefully then for my family. And so these are the questions we ask. And whether it's Cyrus or Alexander the Great, whether it's Rommel and the Africa Corps, whether it's any modern fighter or warrior, is today's enemy worthy of being considered tomorrow's potential friend. And 
you think back to when you were in junior high or high school or even elementary, and it's true of me, it's, it's a cliche, but the people that you get in fights with when you're in elementary school or middle school or high school, after you're done fighting, in a lot of cases, you end up becoming really good friends or even as adults. That's why people don't comprehend if you don't train the bond that two people share who have, who have engaged in physical combat with each other, even within a specific rule set, almost everybody that I've competed against in a tournament, limited as that is so far, I actually end up, either they follow me on social media or I follow them, and then we end up seeing each other at different tournaments. And even if we're not competing against each other, we still greet each other and slap hands and bump fists and ask how each other's doing and encourage each other. Because there's something about engaging in physical combat and physical struggle with another human being that is more intimate than anything else that you can possibly do, short of, again, um, whatever you enjoy with your spouse. There's nobody that knows me better outside of my fam, my spouse, and my children. There's nobody who knows me better than my coach and my training partners. And whether it's my training partner, Cameron, who's 19, 20 years old, whether it's uh, my coach, Nate. Well, how old are you now, Nate? You're half as old, like you're 10 years younger than me. Are you 36 now? 37? He's catching up with me. Um, or whether it's his son, Mason, who's a mutant. Shout out to Mason, whom I love and I respect just about as much, if not more, than anybody else I've ever met. And in Mason's what, are you 15 now, Mason? Whatever you are. I love you. You know that. And so it doesn't matter what their age is. It doesn't matter their skill or their ability. It doesn't matter even what they do outside of the gym. It's that, that experience of training with this person and having that moment of absolute kind of emotional and physical, you know, nakedness, so to speak, because you're not focused on you know, is my nose running? Is there snot on my beard? Am I grunting? You know, you're not worried about that kind of stuff when you're engaged in sparring and physical conflict with someone else. You're just focused on the moment and you're focused on this handhold or you're focused on this position or you're focused on getting out of this submission, whatever it might be. That's what you're focused. You're focused in the moment. And the person that then is with you in that, who is participating in that with you, they're doing the same thing with you. And you reach a certain level after enough hours that you actually start talking to each other while you're engaged in this conflict. Even if you're going 80 or 90%, you're still talking with each other and you're even laughing about what's happening. And that level of intimacy, that level of exchange, which even transcends, you know, words at a certain point and kind of gets even down to the most base emotions. That's the thing that binds people together. That's why people seek out martial arts, combat martial arts. That's why people seek out uh, CrossFit. That's why people seek out struggle, whether it's mountaineering or, you know, endurance running, whatever it might be. When you find that group of people that you can struggle together with, that's tribalism and that's the warrior ethos. And that's why it's so powerful. And that's why it's such a powerful, you know, drug, so to speak. As I tell people as a recovering alcoholic, the most powerful drug that I've ever taken is jujitsu. Because I just can't stop and I can't stop thinking about it and I can't stop wanting to do it. And if I could roll three times a day every day, I'd do it 100%. That's how much I love it. But then back to the point in, in secondly then, what we have according to Pressfield is that tribes are by nef- definition limited in size. And this is a very important point for any group. Tribes are, by definition, limited in size, since social bonds are usually of blood or kinship. 
as I've said before on this podcast, and I explained to other people who get it kind of twisted, you're not my friend. You're not my brother. You're not my whatever you want to call it, whatever term you want to apply to this collegiality that we enjoy or this, this brotherhood or fellowship. You're not my brother if you won't bleed for me and with me. Or as a friend of mine says, you know, the reason we're friends is because I know if I call you, you'll help me bury the body. In fact, you're the type of person who knows the best place to bury the body. And we joke, but I do have friends like that, and maybe you do too, where you would do anything for them. You'd get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and drive halfway across the country to bail them out, whatever the, the trouble might be. But I think too often we settle. We settle for friendships of utility or friendships of pleasure rather than friendships of, of meaning, and by that, friendships of utility are, I have relationships with many business owners that, I, you know, where I frequent regularly, but we're not friends. It's a, it's a friendship of, of utility. You're offering goods and services, and I'm giving you money for those goods and services that allow you to maintain this lifestyle. Likewise, friendships of pleasure. So we get together and we bowl on Thursday nights, or we have a book club. Great. That's, that's awesome. But is that person going to get up? Maybe they do. Maybe they will get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and drive halfway across the country or fly halfway around the world to help you. And if they do, that's a true friend. And those are the, the relationships that we hold on to because they're more valuable than any amount of money or any possessions that we might acquire for ourselves. Because the older you get, in case you don't know this or haven't learned it, but the older you get, the more you, you begin to appreciate friendship. Because at least in, for myself, the life that I have been given and, and the vocations that I've been graced with, they, they, the path, so to speak, the, the path that you walk, you meet less and less people as you go, the further you go with it. And especially with martial arts, for example, and, and being a martial artist, especially combat martial arts and the sacrifices that I've made so far and the price that I've paid so far and the price that my wife and I have paid to carve out for ourselves the family that we both lacked growing up or just the church that I serve and how I've you know, prayed and chosen to serve them in a way that respects and honors not only my call as a pastor, but also their belief and why they're here. It, it's like David Goggins says, if you want to be extraordinary amongst extraordinary people, be prepared to work and sacrifice. But if you just want to be extraordinary, extraordinary, you want to stand out, you want to separate yourself from the sheeple, if that's the way you look at humanity, be prepared to meet less and less people as you go then because less and less people are going to be willing to do and to pay the price to make the sacrifice necessary to get to where you want to go. And so you can have acquaintances. That's fine. I have many, dozens. But as far as friendships, true friends... You're going to meet fewer and fewer along the way. And I think uh, Brene Brown, she talks about this a lot in her vulnerability lectures on shame and vulnerability is that if you have two or three friends, like true friends, then you are fortunate. You are truly fortunate because most people are grateful to just have one true friend. And both my wife and I can testify to the fact that we've had many friends over the years who for one reason or another are no longer our friends. And when you're young, you don't appreciate it until it's gone. You know, I didn't appreciate my best friend, Eric Hansen, when I was 11 years old until we moved away. 
And we try to maintain that friendship over the years. And of course, like any long distance relationship, it, it didn't survive, especially when you're young and you don't even have a driver's license. But yeah, then you get older and you look back on those relationships and you really miss them. Or I think about uh, my buddy, Sean, who I used to cycle with and used to play Halo with every day after classes at seminary. And same thing. I moved and our lives went in different directions and, you know, I truly miss him. And, you know, we only live 40, 45 minutes apart, but, you know, when life changes and you go in different directions, 45 minutes could be half a world away. And so, yeah, tribes by definition are limited in size, usually by blood or kinship, but by social bonds as well. And thus they can feel vulnerable at all times to bigger or stronger, stronger rivals, whether that rival is you just change as a human being or there's some challenge that comes up in life, some problem that you struggle with for years, like addiction, for example. And then all of a sudden one day you come out of the other side of it and go, where'd everybody go? Where's my friends? Where's my family? Where's my tribe? Whatever it may be, or it's an external threat. It's an actual threat, another person another enemy or a group of people who are a threat to you or have become your enemy. It's difficult being exposed and being shown your weaknesses and your vulnerabilities, especially by other people. But tribes live then by a siege mentality. Circle the wagons and, and don't leave the perimeter. As, as Chef cries out in Apocalypse Now, never get out of the boat. Why? Because there's tigers in the jungle, man. And so tribes live by that siege mentality, never get out of the boat. And they see themselves as surrounded and outnumbered and even in peril. I've talked about this before too, that at root, why do people choose to enter into something like combat martial arts? Why do people choose to do that to themselves when fighting seems so contrary to our nature? Why put yourselves through those things? Why suffer the broken bones and the cuts and the bruises and the scars and everything that comes with it, the, the defeats, the losses, whether they're intellectual, physical, or emotional, or even social? Why do it? Well, fear and pain is that for many of us, we're just tired of being afraid and we're tired of being in pain and we see this avenue, this, this art, this discipline as a way out, as a way to confront our fears and our pain and hopefully get free of them, break free of them, get out of this prison of fear and pain. And for myself, at least, I can only speak for myself, that's exactly what it's given me. And that's why, unless something radical happens to change, I'm, I'm never going to stop because I can't. Because much like going to a sobriety group uh, gave me the tools to maintain and live a sober life, uh, combat martial arts has given me peace. It's given me quiet in my mind, in my heart, and in my, in my body as much as I'm constantly in some sort of pain, physically that is, and hurting. That physical hurt, I'll take that any day over the emotional and intellectual pain that I suffered through for decades. And so, yeah, I look at the world and I look at the society as it is today in the 21st century in the United States and I say, I'm surrounded and I'm outnumbered and I'm even threatened by people in the society and by the politics and the ideas that are being accepted by this society. And I need to do something to separate myself out, to circle the wagon, so to speak, and protect my family, protect myself, protect my congregation, protect my friends. How am I going to do that? Well, I'm going to do it this way. 
I'm going to train my mind. I'm going to train my body. I'm going to train myself to control my emotions and my reaction to people so that I can be a good man for others, so I can be a good man for myself, so that I can be the type of man that my wife needs me to be or the type of husband or father that my children need me to be or the type of training partner that my teammates need me to be, whatever it might be, to look around and say, this ain't right. I disagree with this. And so therefore, I'm not going to go along. I'm not going to jump off the cliff. I'm not going to continue to participate in this way that I feel dehumanizes me and makes me less of a man, less of what God made me to be. So they see themselves as surrounded, outnumbered, and ever in peril. And again, in, in a negative way, read mob, prison gang, or Al-Qaeda. But in a positive way, read um, team, brotherhood, warrior class. And so Pressfield continues, the tribal mindset thus has no trouble embracing the concept of asymmetrical warfare and pushing this to its limits, meaning terrorism and beyond. If the enemy is bigger, stronger and more technologically advanced than we are, says the mob, the gang, the terrorist, then we are justified in using any and all methods to strike at him. Criminal and terrorist organizations practice tribe-like codes of honor, but they do not practice the warrior ethos. And that's been my point commenting on this is when the warrior ethos is good and it's honorable and it is courageous, both physically and morally and emotionally courageous, then this won't happen. But when it becomes this shadow tribalism, this criminal tribalism, when it functions on petty jealousy and envy, when it, when it actually thrives on doing violence to others, what we call bullying or terrorism, that's the worst kind of tribalism. That's the worst kind of warrior ethic because they're not practicing a true warrior ethos. They are shadow tribes. They are not warriors, Pressfield writes, in the practice of terror in attempting to terrorize, to actually literally make other people afraid of you. I mean, this is the root of child abuse and domestic violence and bullying and everything that comes with it is because I am in pain, because I'm afraid, I'm going to terrorize you. And that way I can control you through fear and manipulation. Because if you're threatened by me, then I don't have to worry about you attacking me. That's the true meaning of terrorism. I'm going to terrify you. And in that way, I'm going to cause you to be a slave to me, to be afraid of me. And in that way, maybe you don't, you know, take the time to figure out how you're going to hurt me and cause me pain. But they're not warriors, even if they call themselves such. Because in the practice of terror, the terrorist organization uses the enemy's embrace of the war ethos against him. How? By violating the honorable tribal warrior code in the most shocking and extreme manner. That is striking civilian targets, using women and children as human shields, and so on. The terrorist's aim is to so outrage and appall the sense of honor of the enemy that the enemy concludes, quote, these people are fiends and they're madmen. They are monsters, as we call them. Again, this is how we dehumanize and demonize the enemy. Well, they're not, they're not people. They're monsters. They're fiends. They're, they're insane. There's no reasoning with these people. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But have we even asked the question? And so once we say these people are fiends and madmen and decide either to yield to the terrorist demands out of fear or to fight the terrorist by sinking to his moral level, in either case, the terrorist wins because he has driven us through terror, 
through fear and through pain, to adopt his tactics, to embrace his ethic, which is to terrorize others. We will then strike civilian targets in order to kill him or his tribe. And we will use his women and his children as shields so that he can't strike back at us. Rather than say, we will not bomb civilian targets. And we will not kill women and children in order to get to these terrorists who have done these things. Because if we do, then morally, ethically, we are exactly the same. We are the flip side or the opposite side of the, we're the, we're the, opposite side of the road. We're in another ditch. And then we're just throwing bombs back and forth and justifying it. Oh, did I kill your wife and children? Well, you killed my wife and children. So you, you got what you deserved. And as Clint Eastwood says in The Unforgiven, we all get what we deserve. But that's, that is literally what we talk about when we talk about taking the moral high ground, is that we do not bend, we do not compromise our ethic, the warrior ethos. We do not bend or compromise for the sake of the enemy. We rise above, no matter how painful it may be, no matter how difficult it may be. That's the true meaning of courage. Emotional courage is stand up and say, I choose not to react out of pain or out of anger or out of fear. I choose not to be hurt by you. I choose not to react with violence to what you have done to me. But even for myself, as I said earlier, if you touch my wife or my children in order to do violence to hurt them, I will end you. Because at that point, at least for myself, you are not worthy of my respect or my honor. And... Is it truly loving my neighbor as myself to allow someone to do violence to my wife and children, to do violence to my congregation members or to my neighbors? Is that truly loving my neighbor? Is it loving my neighbor to allow him or her to hurt himself, to do violence to himself by hurting others? By by dehumanizing others, you dehumanize yourself. And in a way, then, you will become less than. You become less than human. You become a monstrosity. You become a twisted, perverted form of a a man or a woman by doing violence and, and destroying other people. And so is that truly loving you if I allow you to do that? And of course, it's not loving my wife or children by allowing someone to hurt them. And of course, by allowing someone to hurt my wife and children, I am allowing them to hurt me because I love these people. And I made a promise that I would sacrifice everything, even my own life, for them so that they might live. And so when people ask me, well, how can you be a Christian and a pastor and yet also train in how to fight and how to do violence to other people? I always ask the same question. What's the most loving thing that we can do for another human being? And the answer is to preserve and protect their life. Because what is the most hateful? What is the most evil thing the most morally evil thing that we can do for another human being other than to take their life away from them. Because what is more precious than life? Nothing. And so the terrorist's aim is to draw us in, to get us to fight this asymmetrical war, to sink to his level, so to speak, and to abandon our ethic, to abandon our code. And in this way, we ourselves become less than, we become monstrous. And then we look in the mirror and we wonder, what happened? How did this happen to me? Where did I go wrong? Where did I become like my enemy? And this goes back to the point then, never choose for yourself an enemy that you couldn't say also, 
this could possibly be my friend if the circumstances were different. Because why would you choose for yourself friends who are twisted and perverted monsters? Why would you choose to surround yourself or, or engage people who want to dehumanize you, to demonize you, and to twist you up and to pervert you into something that, well, resembles their own twisted, perverted heart? And yet we do it all the time. We do it all the time because we're in pain and we're afraid of being left out. We're afraid of standing on the outside looking in. We're afraid of not being accepted by this or that social group, whatever it might be. Peer pressure is a powerful thing, no matter what form it takes. And so it is a constant temptation for us every day to conform and compromise our ethics, our morals, our code for the sake of others, whose opinions at the end of the day, we don't actually care that much about if we really think and we're really honest with ourselves. So to conclude, Pressfield writes, what would Leonidas think of waterboarding or extraordinary rendition? How would Cyrus the Great look upon the practice of suicide bombing or video beheadings on YouTube? Exactly. Exactly. How would these men of honor and courage, who actually chose to grant their enemies pardon, or like in Leonidas's case, fight to the death to protect the Greek people, to protect the Spartans, but also the Athenians and others who were often at war with Sparta. What would they think if we compromised our morals and our ethics, if we compromised the warrior ethos so that we could justify suicide bombings and recording and posting on YouTube beheading our enemies, tying the hands of, of homosexuals behind their backs and throwing them off of towers just because they're gay, or throwing acid in a woman's face because she talked to a British soldier and therefore is guilty of fraternizing with an infidel, an infidel. What would they say if we simply hurt each other because it gave us pleasure that we justify to ourselves this violence so that at the end of the day, we don't have to lie awake at night in our beds wondering when the knock at the door is going to come or when the enemy is going to come for us and find us unready. Instead, prepare, train, however that, that looks, whatever shape it takes. Discipline yourself. Read others who encourage and motivate and teach you how to be disciplined intellectually, emotionally, physically. Listen to podcasts, listen to the lectures, watch the videos, and, and on and on and on. Associate with people who want the best for you, who encourage and motivate you to be better than even you imagine you can be. Don't be afraid to say, I want to be extraordinary. What, whatever that might be, an extraordinary spouse or parent, an extraordinary friend or neighbor, an extraordinary coworker or boss, whatever it might be. Strive to be extraordinary because the worst that can happen is that along the way you discover that you actually reached your goal or you had to change and alter your goals, but yet you can say, I'm satisfied. It's enough. It's good enough. I'm good enough. I am enough. So that's all I got for right now. That wraps up 
Pressfield, meditation number seven on tribes and gangs and so forth. And again, this is the Warrior Ethos, Stephen Pressfield, published by Black Irish Press, which I think, again, is available on Amazon. If I remember this time, I'll link to it. But yeah, I highly recommend it. Again, you can read one of those meditations in a couple minutes and think and chew on it for the rest of the day. That's why I keep going back to it. It's actually why this podcast exists, because I read it and said, I got to talk about this. And if nothing else, the reason that I do this is actually for my kids at, at base. That's why I do podcasts is so that when I'm gone, my kids can listen to me right now talk about this stuff. And so if someone asks them or they even ask themselves, you know, what did my dad think about this? Or what was my dad trying to do when I was seven or 13 or 16 or whenever it was? What was he trying to teach us? And maybe I didn't do it the best way that I could right now today. Maybe I didn't express myself in the best way possible, but that's why I do this. I do it for my kids. I do it for you too. If you get anything from this, then great. Thank you. I'm, I'm truly gratified and glad that you got anything from this. So for all of those of you who listen, for all those who give me feedback and tell me how much you appreciate this, I really do appreciate that you are benefiting from this podcast. And to my children in the future, God willing, I love you, and I'll see you on the other side. Peace.